0: The reading is from uh, Romans 3, verses 9 to 26. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that in every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to, who, to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement and through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because His forbearance, in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Do keep that open in front of you if you can. Um, We'll be digging into it a little bit now for just uh, 20 minutes or so. But as we do that, let me say another word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that in it we discover who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, this morning as we grapple uh, with this difficult and knotty passage i pray that you would help us to understand and that you'd help us to accept it and that more than anything lord you would leave us with a wonder and awe at your wonderful grace and love for us in your name amen as i was uh, preparing um this sermon a couple of days ago um i was uh, I had a moment of distraction, was flicking through the BBC News website, and I came across this story. A former Royal Marine who killed a vulnerable 83-year-old dog walker in a savage attack has been jailed for at least 28 years. Alexander Palmer, 24, attacked Peter Wrighton from behind, stabbing him 45 times before dumping his body under brambles in Norfolk last August. Police initially concluded Mr Wrighton had been killed by an animal due to the severity of his injuries. Palmer, who had denied murder, was given a life sentence. Sentencing at Nottingham Crown Court, Mr Justice Goose said, "'Your offence was substantially aggravated in its seriousness, "'firstly by the fact that there was a significant degree "'of planning and premeditation for this murder. "'Secondly, the victim was particularly vulnerable, "'being 83 and alone. "'Thirdly, by the extent of the savage violence "'you used to kill him. "'You took a knife and drove to the scene "'for the sole purpose of murder.' The judge added, you attacked the deceased for no other reason than he was walking his dogs. At the age of 83, and slightly built, he was no match for the violence of your attack. Mr. Wrighton's children, Andrew Wrighton and Carol Todd, watched from the public gallery as Palmer was taken down to the cells. Well, that's not going to go down as the uh, lightest opening to a sermon uh, that you will have heard here at All Souls. But how does a story like that make you feel? We've said it a few times over the last few weeks. I'm going to say it again. I think there's been a lot of stories in the news over the last, let's say, six months that have given us a real sense of indignance at injustice, a real longing for people to be held accountable for their actions, uh, whether that's uh, related to sexual abuse, uh, especially among children, the whole Hollywood scandal, um, whether that's related to... uh, the Carillion affair and uh, uh, banking journalism, all sorts of, uh, over, the, uh, over the previous few years, all sorts of industries, all sorts of businesses, and all sorts of individuals, have been the subject of something of a crying out for justice. How about you? How do you feel? Do you feel that uh, anybody should be indignant at you crying out for justice against you? Well, this morning, looking at this passage in Romans, we're really going to be digging into the question of how God vindicates us through the cross, and how he does that without that being a travesty of justice. Um, And as I said, there's going to be some difficult things to accept, and can I just say up front that if you struggle with some of the things that we talk about, please come and chat. Um, I've been... I've spent a lot of time this week staring out the window saying, can I I accept this? Does this make sense? So don't think that I feel like I've got it all sewn up. But in this season approaching Easter, we're having a few uh, Sundays looking at the cross and what it means. This is the central moment of Christianity. Um, The uh, three of the four gospel accounts are structured, really... To have this drive towards the cross uh, as their really as their literary shape, it is the central moment in some ways of the whole life of Jesus. Um, John talked last week about how the cross, as an emblem of Christianity, is absurd. This is a weapon. Of, this is an, this is a method of execution. This is like wearing uh, an electric chair round our necks as jewelry. Um, we've lost some of the horror of the cross. Um, And in some ways, these sermons are a little bit about trying to recapture a real understanding of what went on there, what was accomplished. Um, And so over these Sundays, we're taking a few different angles on the cross. Um, In fact, the Bible uses lots and lots of images and metaphors for the cross. You might say, that it explores the cross through lots of different arenas of life. It looks at it uh, through the law courts, the metaphors around the the law courts, and that effectively is what we're looking at this morning. The idea that we are guilty, and that in Christ we are justified, we are vindicated. Um, There's the arena of the temple, that somehow we are unfit for God's presence uh, because of our sin, and that actually... Christ offers himself as a sacrifice of atonement, some really uncomfortable ideas in that, but you might notice that Paul draws on that, actually, in our passage uh, down there in verse 24. And John looked a little bit at that last week. Another arena would be the marketplace, Um, this idea that we are slaves, we are slaves to our sin, we are unable to escape uh, from our own sinfulness, and that Jesus, Pays the ransom. Jesus pays to redeem us uh, for freedom. Again, Paul draws on that here in verse 25. Another arena would be the home, the idea that we are alienated uh, from God, Um, we are estranged from Him, um, and that in the cross we are reconciled to God, we are even adopted into His family. We'll be looking at that. Uh, next week. Each of these arenas just tries to draw on uh, different aspects of our human experience to help us understand a bit more about what was going on on the cross. Um, And as you saw, several of those arenas are actually present in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And I think I would argue that we need all of these arenas. As I was looking to um, work work out which passages we might look at during this uh, run-up to Easter, one of the things that struck me was how hard it is to find a passage that deals with one of these sort of metaphors, I suppose you might say, on their own. Paul always mixes them up together because actually they need each other. Um, To give you an example of how they might draw on each other in a positive way... Uh, some of them, such as the one we're looking at this morning, the idea of the law courts can feel a little bit cold and transactional, one might say. Um, whereas others draw on something much more emotional. There's even this idea of God's anger. Um, but actually, we, we want God's reaction to be both. That's a controversial thing to say, but bear with me for a moment. Let me tell you a very quick story. Um, in my early 20s, I was visiting my parents uh, who uh, at that point were living in East Africa, and that I was sitting on the veranda with their dog. And suddenly, out of absolutely nowhere, the dog attacked me I went absolutely nuts. And if you want, I can can still show you some scars. Um, Now, at the time, I was trying to earn my primary income from music, so um, the loss of fingers and use of my hands could have been particularly serious, one could argue. And in some ways, I came very close. about, I don't know, probably 20 seconds after this attack had started, my dad, who was a very mild-mannered man, he's, he's trained as an accountant, um, and uh, he's one of the most gracious men I know, my dad stormed onto the veranda, and he grabbed this dog and held him against the wall um, with a ferocity that I'd never seen um, before. Um, I tell that story simply to point out this idea that love, the deepest love, often looks like anger. He was furious with this dog for the way it was attacking his son. And that's what I felt as I reflected on this experience, and I draw on that often as I think about my father and how much he loves me. That's one of the experiences I go to in my head. The idea that God is angry at human sin, he's angry at all uh, of the suffering in this world, is something that we want to be true. And, and the Bible talks so much about how God is angry at sin. God loves us. There's a personal feel to uh, his love. There's a slightly more detached feel when, God, when it talks about God's anger at our sin, one might say. But of course, that still remains a little bit uncomfortable, that idea that God might be angry with us. But of course, anybody who is truly in love and has been for a long time will know how the people who we love the most can anger us the most. It's a strongly relational idea. One of the problems with it, of course, is that we can't imagine anger that is perfectly matched to uh, its cause. When we get angry, we boil over, uh, and we live to regret what we did. The idea of the law courts as a second arena of what God does is therefore a perfect balance. There is that cold, I use, it's not a nice word to use, but you know what I mean, that sense of, of precise rightness about God's reaction, um, that is a reassurance to us that his anger never boils over like ours does. It is always perfectly matched to uh, the situation. We want that sobriety. Going back to that story that I read right at the beginning, I feel quite angry when I read stories like that. Um, And there's a little bit of me that looks at the sentence and goes, yeah, yeah, they should have got that. Now, I'm not saying that's a right reaction. But I think when we feel that sense of indignance at what people have done, we do want justice, but we want the justice of the law courts. We don't want the justice of a lynch mob. So anyway, there's a little example of how some of these images maybe draw on each other in helpful ways. That's not to say for a moment that they don't leave us still feeling a little bit uncomfortable very often. And I would also argue that even when you put them all together, there are aspects of Uh, the cross and what went on there that we don't understand. As one commentator said, behind all the metaphors of the cross lies a mystery. We can't fully grasp all that went on at the cross. But these images need each other, um, and we need to approach them with a certain humility. So this morning, then, we're going to drill in to this idea of justification, of God's vindication of us. And we're going to do that looking at the book of Romans. Just to give you a moment of occasion for for the book of Romans, Paul wrote this book to um, the church in Rome who were trying to grapple with uh, the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community and in this formerly sort of Jewish religion, as they understood it, how were they, what were the relative relationships between these two groups of people? Um, And essentially, in the first few chapters, up until our reading, Paul has been arguing that we are all on the same page. We are all on a level footing together. And I suppose our pivot, pivot point, really, is uh, in our passage, verse 23 and 24. There is no difference. For all, whether you are Jewish or non-Jewish, have sinned and fall short of the glory in God. And all are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. This is probably Paul's most exhaustive, well, it is Paul's most exhaustive and often seen as his greatest literary work. Um, And we could spend a year quite happily going through this book together. That's not the plan, by the way. But our passage starts with this idea that we are all guilty. I don't know what that does in your spirits to be told that. Paul writes this poem. In fact, what he does is he draws different lines from different parts of the Old Testament, mainly from the Psalms, to show how actually this has been the story of the Bible so far um, in no uncertain terms, that there is no one who is fully righteous, not even one. Um, Just as a little aside, um, the way that Quotes like this from the Old Testament would have worked within the Jewish culture that Paul was writing. You'd have the quote, but everyone knew their Bible so well that they would have, they would have filled in the rest of the quote as well. Um, and so the first readers that would have looked at this and read and heard this would have filled in each of those passages um, and remembered that actually in each of those passages, it also talks about God's grace, uh, God's pardoning of our sin. So this idea that was deeply embedded in the Old Testament as well as in the New. And therefore, this universal sense is true whether we know the law, whether we know what it means to follow God, um, or whether we don't and we're simply reliant on our conscience. Um, I don't know, is that something that you accept? It's a difficult one, isn't it, Um, for some of us. You might think, well, there's the Ten Commandments. I've I've never murdered anyone. Um, I suppose uh, if I was to push you on that, I would ask, uh, what about loving the Lord your God? Is that something that you have done perfectly all your life? Um, I might also point to Jesus' own words, where he, he says that actually if you've been angry, that's simply the thin end of the wedge of murder. I would talk about how Jesus says that actually it is not just our actions uh, that show us to be sinful. That our actions might show us to be sinful, but actually what's going on is in our hearts. Our actions are simply the overflow of our hearts. And Paul expects us all to be able to accept the idea that none of us are perfect. All of us stand in some way guilty before God and that, therefore, all of our mouths are silenced. Did you notice that in verse 19? That every, every mouth shall be silenced. That's a, a reference to the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, uh, law courts happened out in the open. You'd often spectate on things that were going on uh, in local law. Um, and when, when you had nothing more to say in your defense, you would put your hand over your mouth as, a, as an indication that you had nothing more to say. Or if you said outrageous things uh, that clearly weren't right, um, the opposition lawyer might strike you in the mouth to silence you. That's what happened to Jesus. I don't know if you remember when he's speaking to Pilate. And he responds in a way that Pilate considers um, a little bit obnoxious. And, um, and he is struck in the mouth. Um, this, this is this image that we are Silenced by our own sin, by the, the fact that we have run out of any defence. So, is this fair? Is this a fair reflection of us? I don't know. Let me tell you one more very quick story. I remember working for a recording studio. I was a technical engineer, which if you know my technical abilities, you'll find hysterical. Um, but I... Uh, The first thing I would do in the morning was make sure all the recording studios were up and running and just help them out with any technical issues. Um, By about half past nine in the morning, I would uh, disappear upstairs to the workshop and I would slump in a chair and go, "Whew!" it's the first bit of the day over and done with. And I remember one morning flicking open uh, one of the industry magazines that was lying around, having a quiet moment, and the CEO of the company walks in. I'd only been working there a week or so, and this was his moment to come and meet me. So, of course... What he finds is me sitting there reading a magazine. I don't know if you can imagine um, your CEO, whoever that might be, or whoever it might have been in a previous life. Is there a moment in your week where you really wish, where you really hope maybe that they don't walk in and see what you're doing? Now, of course, all I could do to he pointed out what was going on um, in no uncertain terms, and uh, I felt Dreadful! This was my first imp- his first impression of me. And I simply, obviously, apologised and showed myself to be getting on with something more useful. What could I have said at that point? Could I have said, well, look, mate, no one's perfect. <laughs> um, well, maybe I could have done. What I could also have said was, mate, have you any idea how little work goes on in this workshop? Because <laughs> that's the bar that had been set. Um, whatever, those, whatever response I might have made, it wouldn't have taken away from the fact that actually he was ultimately right, that in, in strictest terms, what I was doing was less than perfect. I was being paid to do something more important than read a magazine. Where's the bar set for our sense of what perfection looks like in following God. God is our CEO, one might say. God sees every single moment, the moments that we're least comfortable with and the moments uh, that we wouldn't mind him seeing similarly. So there's that sense that everyone is guilty, that uncomfortable sense that leads on to the sense of the serious consequences of us all being guilty. Because we're not guilty about, against some arbitrary set of laws when a judge... Judges you uh, against laws. He is judging you against laws that are external to himself. When we are guilty against God, it is an affront to his very character, his very self, out of which um, what it means to, to live right actually comes. So when we sin, we put ourselves effectively in alienation to God. We become his enemies. And, of course, God in his righteousness cannot simply brush all of that under the carpet. That would be to contradict his very self. If a judge was to say to you, well, I see that you've done something wrong, we're just going to forget about it, he could only do that if he doesn't actually truly respect the law. God, when we sin against God, there is something absolutely central to him. Uh, And that's really what it means uh, when it says in verse 23, that we fall short of the glory of God. And of course, what we find is that this is not something that we can fix on our own, um, and that it comes with a penalty. And, and the penalty is exclusion from God and from all his purposes, exclusion from the very one who gives us life and gives us everything. you might be pleased to know that the trajectory is now moving the other way. We're going to be heading back towards a positive place. And I hope that that's where we land. I hope that as you leave the building this morning, my hope is that you go, as I said, with a sense of God's love and grace, not with a heavy heart about the this, this darker aspects of how that interacts with our lived experience. But this wonderful news is that Jesus pays the penalty uh, for our sin. Jesus dies in our place. God doesn't just let us off. The penalty for, uh, for sin is fully visited, um, but it is visited on Jesus. Um, we are vindicated. It's as if we had never done wrong. And this is something that is freely offered to all of us uh, in God's grace. All we need is faith that that is indeed what Jesus has done and offers to us. Again, verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, just before we finish, I want to talk for a moment about this idea of of whether that is, in fact, justice. Because it doesn't feel like justice, does it, in some ways, that Jesus should uh, be the one that takes our penalty on our behalf. It's hard to find a a contemporary context in which that would be an acceptable way in which the law was expressed. Um, And I, I don't actually have a very simple answer to that. I think partly my response to that is that it's exactly the kind of place where we have to be careful of overstretching human metaphors uh, about this incredibly mysterious thing that happens on the cross. But here are some things that might help us on the way. Firstly, uh, the essence of who Jesus is, is that he is human. He is both God and human, but he is fully human, and therefore he is a legitimate representative of humanity. I would also say Jesus is not some innocent victim. This is a massively controversial idea, of course, And often Jesus is portrayed as some innocent victim in all of this. But he wasn't. He was absolutely determined that he was going to be the person to take this on himself. As I said, the whole shape of of most of the Gospels is Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem knowing exactly what was going to happen to him there. Um, I'd also say that... uh, Sometimes we put a little bit too much distinction between the idea of Jesus and his Father. We see them as completely separate. Um, I don't want to get into what we call Trinitarian theology, Father, Son, Spirit, and how we understand all of that. But all I will say is this. If we, if we put too much division between the Father, Son, and Spirit, then we, have too much of, we, we end up with a, too much of an external sense of God punishing his Son. Um, actually, what we need to understand is that God is absorbing within Himself uh, this this death um, in Father and Son together. I, I, that may not um, answer all of your questions uh, about this. I suppose I'd just finish by simply asking: How does all of this make you feel? And I want to finish that. I just want to say a prayer. Um, uh, that allows us maybe to respond to uh, what we've been looking at this morning. Lord God, you see everything that's going on in our hearts right now. Um, You see our grappling with these ideas um, and our searching for what is true, what is right. Um, Grappling for a right sense of who we are and who you are. And our prayer is that we would, in humility, know your truth, um, that you would teach us, uh, give us a sense of resonance about what of this is of you and what that which is not. But we want you to bring us to a point where we understand and are able to face our unworthiness before you and allow that to be the context in which. That we stand in your free gift of grace more than anything lord we thank you for your never giving up never-ending love for us that was expressed in this deepest giving of yourself for us and we thank you that in it all you welcome us back into relationship with you you welcome us into all of your purposes Uh, for this world you welcome us back into life in all of its fullness and wherever each of us are lord i pray that you would help us to respond rightly uh, to you as we think about this passage in your name amen